Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley. This is the Red Box Podcast, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, uh, which, let's be honest, you've got the time to listen to in full now. I suspect over, I don't know, the next six or seven weeks, you may find yourself at home and maybe in need of a bit of company. So stick the radio on uh, and you can find me on Times Radio Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's like the podcast, but longer and even more fun. Uh, and so you can get all the bits that we can't squeeze into the podcast. While we've got some uh, housekeeping, obviously in the coming uh, few weeks, being well informed is more important than ever. And we've got a special flash sale uh, for Times and Sunday Times digital subscriptions. It's half price for six months, but it ends at five o'clock today. Uh, that's Tuesday the 5th of January so uh, you need to get a wriggle on but it's definitely worth doing if you haven't done it already go to the times.co.uk forward slash times red box and get yourself a half price for six months times digital subscription I think that's all the housekeeping over with Uh, right coming up on today's episode Focusing on the positive, we have been touring the world. It's back on Times Radio Airways again, uh, this time to find out how other countries are dealing with the rollout of the vaccine. Really interesting stuff about how uh, some countries haven't even started vaccinating yet and uh, how some countries are vaccinating different groups. That is coming up next on the podcast. But first, as ever, it's our columnist panel. And it's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. That's Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich. Let's uh, get stuck in then. We're talking about vaccines um, at 11 o'clock and how other countries are doing it, Uh, mainly because let's focus on the positive and the root out of this. But Danny, you think that we're all being a bit irritable about the vaccine programme, is that right? I'm just, it's understandable that we're all anxious that the government get it right. It's also understandable that we're a bit sceptical about that. What's not understandable is the sort of feeling that it's already a fiasco, which does permeate a lot of the discussion about it. The truth is, uh, when the government said it wasn't going to join the European procurement project on vaccines and everyone said they were being ridiculous and uh, British exceptionalists. They were correct about in making that judgment. Uh, They made it for the right reasons as well, because they thought they wouldn't be able to get the right negotiation on the right products, uh, which turned out to be insightful. Uh, We have therefore been able to approve the vaccine before other countries, and we are doing much better than other countries in terms of getting the vaccine out. Now, that's not... um, to, to, uh, to, to, to repeat Gavin Williamson's mistake of thinking this is because our country is 
great. It's not uniquely great, but it's not uniquely awful either. And um, I think that we ought, you know, it, it does have a, a sort of effect if we think, if we can't distinguish between things that have already gone wrong and things that we worry will go wrong. And I'm just a bit concerned about that. What do you think, uh, David? Are you Where were you on the cynical, irritable or joyful spectrum? Uh, tediously, I think Danny is absolutely right about this. I mean, except about <laughs> one thing, which is, which is it's far too early to tell how we stand with regard to other countries with rollout. I mean, uh, some countries' uh, regulators uh, gave the go-ahead slightly later than we did. It's been a matter of weeks, not of months. And with somewhere like Germany, I'd actually like to see how their rollout comes over the next month or so before I'm making a judgment about who's sure. better and who's not. Not that it not that it kind of totally matters, but Dan is absolutely right about this. We actually have a very good platform for a rollout of uh, vaccinations in this country. We do a large number of vaccinations every year anyway. This is a matter of kind of acceleration. Um, the government took the critical decision um, uh, advised by Tony Blair, but uh, possibly they'd already decided to do it. Danny has a, a view about that, I know. Um, that they were going to go on the basis of single dose and then a top up three months later. That gave a lot greater coverage to people immediately they took that decision. But the penalty of that decision, taking that decision was that it seemed to contradict earlier advice and therefore created a degree of uh, uh, area where people could begin to have their doubts. But once you've allayed those doubts, I think we're looking good on this. I mean, famous last words, and people will kind of turn it back on you if, if it all goes pear-shaped. The big worry we do have, however, is that this huge spike in coronavirus might in some way affect our capacity to roll out the vaccine. It doesn't look like it at the moment, but it's something you've got to be alive to. No, I agree. I'm worried yeah, about that too. If, if schools are shutting because they haven't got teachers, it's possible that vaccination centres have to shut because the people in, in them uh, um, can't can't get to work either I, I, it's one of these things with the criticism of the government I'm, I'm constantly conflicted by because I'm I'm definitely in the camp of being more sympathetic or understanding than most but because it's an incredibly complicated thing but they do make it sort of hard to sustain and um, a friend uh, texted me last night just saying to say I think Boris is effing it up but I also hate the people who think Boris is effing it up. And that's basically where I am. <laughs> yeah. That the people who just think, oh, it's the Tories, the Tories, the Tories, um, are, are really annoying. But they're, you know, almost as annoying as, as the fact that um, the, the, the Prime Minister's capacity to, to sort of uh, test your patience well, um, and to do. And there's this thing about reluctance, which I'm really interested in. The way he keeps saying, and Michael Gove was doing it again this morning, saying, oh, very reluctant to take these decisions, which I think he thinks, Boris Johnson thinks, is sort of endearing in some way, um, Danny. But well, actually, you think, well, I, if, you, if you were a bit more keener on taking these decisions a bit, a bit earlier, we might not constantly find ourselves well, playing catch up. I think they're right to be reluctant. Um, I also happen to think the criticism um, that they didn't lock. You know, they had, didn't do tough enough measures early enough, which I sort of made in print at the time, uh, is a correct criticism. Um, and I think it's possible to maintain two things at once. One is to be sympathetic with the huge nature, huge size of this problem and how difficult it is to tackle. Um, and the other is to be critical of individual decisions that you don't think are correct. My view is that by far the most important factor in this is the virus, not decisions taken by the government. That is the reason why we're locked down. It's the reason why um, 
schools are in chaos. It's the reason why, um, you know, all the consequences of lockdown are being felt and all the consequences of the disease are being felt. The government's actions are a minor part of this. They're, they're worth critiquing. Um, I think that suggesting they've been absolutely awful is incorrect, uh, but it's certainly not the case that we've been well beating as they've claimed. Uh, I think it's probably nearer the former than the the latter. I think that they they've made some serious mistakes. Um, but I do. But I but I nevertheless think they've made serious mistakes in the face of really really difficult decisions and lots of other countries have made those mistakes so when we were having a furious row about ppe which we were then furious about the solution to as well um other countries also had that problem with ppe like germany did right now on vaccines france has got the massive problem which is different to our problem but yet france also locked down earlier so people have done different incorrect things in the light of many, many very difficult dilemmas. So I think it's possible to balance these things in some sort of reasonable assessment. Oh, the trouble with Danny uh, is he's just sort of all even-handed and sensible in measure, isn't he? Yeah, he's being a bit too even-handed here, maybe just at this little point, just to kind of uh, post a... Um, it, it, it's, not, it, it's not that he's incorrect in what he said, it's it's maybe the criticism at some aspects doesn't go quite far enough. I mean, the first thing that you notice about this government is its tendency to fall back on, and I'm really sorry to use the word bullshit, at every available opportunity when it feels... Well, no, I will, will apologise to all of the uh, homeschooling children uh, who are listening to this, uh, <laughs> this Oh, that's part of their education syllabus now, is listening to the three of us, is it? They kind of put it... You know, what is that, an A-level class, an o, uh, uh, a GCSE class, or is it as for the under-sevens? Maybe. That's learning that you can genuinely call remote, I think. <laughs> so, OK, without repeating your swearing, continue to make your point, David. Yes, so it's been couched in, in, in these kind of absurd, glorified terms sometimes. Or, and I think overall the general picture isn't wrong. The government has expressed its reluctance and therefore has had a tendency to act later than it should have acted. I mean, the classic... Yeah, I agree with that. I think nonsense. that's correct. I mean, the nonsense about Christmas was absolutely ridiculous and incredibly damaging. Um, now, it's not as damaging, Dan is right, as the virus is damaging. The, the virus, you know, and its mutation, etc., sets the pace. But we're not wrong to notice that the government... And part of the reason for this, and one of the things I've been very interested in is watching the work recently of a Tory MP called uh, Neil O'Brien, who's been taking on the anti-lockdown people in a kind of big way, particularly those associated with the Telegraph, etc., which is a kind of big thing, really, for a Tory MP to do, to take on the Telegraph like that, is because the Conservative Party has this wing, this kind of group of people, off to its right, continuously criticising and carping at anything that it does, um, which smacks of, uh, of lockdown, and actually it, 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 it's often in lockdown denial. And I think yeah. it's leaned too far to listening to the or worrying about these people and the newspapers that those people read or represent. And that's yeah. been a difficulty for it. I, I, I actually agree with that. I think they have. I think that has exercised an unhelpful pressure. Um, and I think Neil O'Brien, uh, who sort of actually kind of quite central to a cent you know in conservative spectrum terms is somewhere in the center of it uh, has been making very robust points i have oscillated between two things one is 
actually delighted that someone shows some leadership, tackles these arguments and is frank about the mistakes that have been made. And my concern for Neil's long-term future, because I think he's very valuable to <laughs> British politics, and I'm concerned about, you know, so, and I'm concerned about that, uh, you know, uh, there's always a thin line between sort of bravery and and uh, making a political error. Um, so I kind of oscillate every time I see him uh, take one of these things on robustly. But mostly I veer towards thinking, well, it's a good thing someone's made these arguments because actually the government is oppressed a little bit by what have turned out to be, you know, wrong arguments about the course of the of, of the virus. I was thinking about this last night. Is it, to what extent do, would the Tory government's approach to coronavirus have been different if, if for some reason, by some quirk, the anti-lockdown, well, I called them meatballs, not masks, nutters. You know, the people obsessed with Sweden for two weeks and then, you know, the Barrington <laughs> day or whatever. If they had been on the left rather than the right, um, because it does... Well, they're, they're, they're very... There's not many of them. They're very noisy and they seem to have a disproportionate <laughs> influence on the government. This is... this. This is a really interesting and bigger question, and let's ref- uh, 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 and you can look at it with reference to Europe. Back in the seventies, the major political force that was opposed to Britain membership of the European Community was the left of the Labour Party. There were people on the right of the Tory Party, but the left of the Labour were much more significant. It was the Labour Party that wanted that was always in danger of saying we should get out. It was the Labour Party that went into the referendum uh, and so on. Uh, at that point, the Conservative Party was pretty united in its support for membership of the European community for all kinds of reasons. Look at how that position entirely reversed during the course of the 80s and the early 90s through Maastricht, uh, and, and Labour also reversed. And look at the what that meant for what different governments and different parties did as a consequence of having that group off, a significant group off to one side of the party which had a significant voice. It's absolutely critical and sometimes uh, that tail wags the entire political dog. Yeah, I, don't, I, 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 would, I would say that I think the impact has been important but not absolutely critical. Right, in the, on the whole, the government... I think the government has hesitated too much. I think it's in one or two places it's waited too long. Different the first lockdown, which was more on scientific advice than the than this one, where I think it was a, really effectively against the thrust of that advice. I think that as a result of that pressure, it has hesitated longer than it should. On the other hand, I think broadly speaking, it has pursued a policy of following scientific advice rather than following those people. So I think they have yeah, definitely true. had a role. Um, uh, they and. They, their importance is not just because of who they are, but because they're linked to an argument that is actually important, which is this is unbelievably economically damaging and socially crippling what we're doing. It's right. You know, it has been right to ask some questions. Is this absolutely necessary? Do we need to make this decision now? Is there no way that we can keep the schools open? But ultimately, I think that has led the government to hesitate more than it should have done. Yeah, and I mean, you just hope that the, the impact of that it won't. Because I heard Desmond Swain was on breakfast uh, on Time Twenty this morning, and he, you know, he went from saying uh, lockdowns don't work to, you know, he couldn't have an answer to what's the alternative. To then saying, well, the, the vaccine rollout's not going to work either. But I'm not quite sure what his alternative was. Just everybody puts up a portrait of Margaret Thatcher, and it'll all be all right, presumably. <laughs> yeah, well, Desmond I mean, Swain. Just... Desmond Swain is a classic example because he's somebody who's actually argued that scientists who like lockdown have been manipulating the figures so as to persuade the poor gullible government that they should have lockdown. And I think to myself, well, I mean, 
then maybe there should be a place in Parliament for people that stupid. And then I think, well, maybe there just shouldn't. Yeah, I would say this, that there, there, there is a, a strand of opinion in both political parties that is of this sort, right? Labour has its own strand of opinion that's a, you know, that, 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 that had begun to sort of chip away at the vaccine issue last week as well. So the, 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 um, but the Conservative Party has, I think, at the moment got a thicker streak of it <laughs> and it's more influential. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's nothing quite like having a thick, thick streak uh, in a, in a <laughs> party. Um, well, while we've been chatting, Clarissa has been in touch saying, my favourite radio item of the week, three intelligent, perceptive people having intelligent, balanced and fair discussion. Nailing well, when's it on that a on? number of levels this morning. Hard to disagree with most of what's been said. So hopefully, she'll, whatever she's listening to, hopefully she'll, she'll retune and come over to Times Radio very soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, as ever, Jez, lovely to speak to you. Nice to have you back. Um, Danny, what are you writing your column on for tomorrow? Um, well, actually, I, I don't completely know yet. I'm discussing with the editor a couple of different ideas, but one of them is possibly this uh, whole area of the impact the sceptics have had, and uh, I'll do a deal in which I admit that they uh, may ask some reasonable questions if they admit they've now had the answers. That's Danny Finkelstein and David Iwanovich there, and you, don't forget you can read them in The Times. It's the Danny writes for Wednesday... David on a Thursday uh, you can also pick up a copy of the paper or subscribe to the Times you can do that if you're quick you can get six months at half price on a digital subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesmedbox but it ends at five o'clock on Tuesday January the 5th right coming up vaccination nations how are other countries dealing with the rollout of the jab that's next on the Red Box podcast A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Now time for Vaccination Nations, a tour of the globe uh, to find out uh, how other countries are rolling out the jab. Uh, this was Boris Johnson uh, talking about how the only glimmer of hope was the rollout of vaccines. By the middle of February, 
If things go well, and with a fair wind in our sails, we expect to have offered the first vaccine dose to everyone in the four top priority groups identified by the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. If we succeed in vaccinating all those groups, we will have removed huge numbers of people from the path of the virus. And of course, that will eventually enable us to lift many of the restrictions we have endured for so long. So it's the key to letting us all live our lives again. So what better way to find out what stage of rollout we're at than with a trip on Times Radio Airways. We're going to find out why vaccine rollout is having issues on the continent, why Israel are doing so well, and what's happening in China, Japan, Indonesia and the United States. So fasten your seatbelt, seats in the upright position and prepare to take off. We're heading first to America. And Will Pavia, the Times New York correspondent, is there. Will, first of all, paint us a picture of what the uh, vaccine, the infection rates are like. What's it like right now in the Big Apple? So in New York at the moment, there is a sense that the virus is coming back and that we are very gradually returning to the spring. I mean, we're, we're a long way from it yet, um, but there's certainly a sense that the virus is coming back. Positivity rates are creeping up. Um, and so are hospitalizations, and people are, are becoming slightly more nervous than they were. There was a long time when the infection rates were very low here. We had an absolute walloping in in March and April when the city was really, really badly hit, and after that there was very high compliance with mask wearing, and the infection rates fell, and they were very low all the way through the summer, all the way to about October, November. And so people started to feel, I think, slightly smug about that. Um, and so now you can sense that people are starting to get a bit more worried. Schools, the elementary schools were closed in November and, and in October, November, and then reopened. And so elementary schools are still open in a sort of hybrid model where they do two days or three days a week. Middle schools and uh, high schools are still closed. And what about the vaccine? How's the vaccine rollout going in America? Is there pressure on the government to go faster? They were predicting, the Trump administration was saying that they were going to vaccinate 20 million people in December. Now, according to the CDC, uh, as of Monday, uh, they distributed 15 million doses of vaccine. 4.5 million people had received it. And there doesn't seem to be very much sort of messaging from the top or a sort of comprehensive plan. The president is certainly not focused on this. And there's also occasional evidence of hesitancy. Um, the governor of Ohio said that something like 60% of healthcare workers had declined it when offered it. And there's only sort of anecdotal evidence of that. But, but that's something that perhaps is happening too. Um, meanwhile, in Florida, we've seen these sort of pictures of people queuing up in deck chairs to, to get it, lining up. Um, and actually, in New York, people are looking at Florida and saying, well, that's the way we've got to do it. And there's starting to be suggestions that, you know, we should deploy the National Guard, we should set up huge tents in car parks, and people should line up. And maybe that's what happens. Joe Biden has said that he wants to start vaccinating a million people a day. And if they're going to get to that figure, they're going to have to do something quite drastic. And just finally, Will, uh, maybe nobody's taking any notice at all. But if they are, how is the UK's response to... Uh, tackling coronavirus being viewed in the United States? There's been a lot of coverage here of, of uh, the coronavirus surging in, in Britain and, and lockdowns and so on. Britain's also had quite a lot of admiring coverage for being so quick to approve the vaccine and to sort of start getting it to people. 
um, I do remember sort of last month uh, seeing the first sort of Britons to receive the vaccine on the front of the New York Post um, and they noted that one of the, one of them was called William Shakespeare and the headline was The Taming of the Flu and they said that he was a gentleman of corona. So there was a lot of very sort of upbeat, sort of quite jaunty coverage of uh, Britain starting its programme so quickly. But I would say, broadly speaking, uh, the coverage has been pretty positive uh, in terms of vaccine distribution and, and people are looking at Britain in terms of what the US might perhaps learn from, from how it's distributed there. So that's Will Pavia, a New York correspondent for The Times, uh, telling us about the vaccine rollout in the United States. But we're touring the world now, so fasten your seatbelts. Seats in the upright position, prepare for takeoff. We're off to France on Times Radio Airways. We, uh, we touched down in Paris to be joined by The Times Paris correspondent, Adam Sage. Hi, Adam. Hello. Uh, thanks for joining us. So, uh, first of all, what's, what's the current situation in France like in terms of the infection rates uh, and uh, and death rates and so on? Well, France went into lockdown around about the same time as the UK, as you know, at the beginning of November and came out at the same time at the beginning of December, more or less. Infection rates are much higher than Emmanuel Macron wanted. He wanted a figure of about 5,000 a day, and they're running at between fifteen and 20,000 a day on average in, in the last couple of weeks. Um, that's noticeably less than the UK, of course, but, but nevertheless a, a figure of concern to, to President Macron. OK, so, and, and what's the, what is, what is the, the, the position on the vaccine and the, the hold-up on the rollout? Is President Macron getting criticism on that? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's proving to be a, a national fiasco, as several doctors and opposition politicians have said. By Monday morning, after starting the vaccine programme on the 27th of December, France had managed the grand total of 516 vaccinations. Um, there was a big, big, big push yesterday, and I think they got up to over 2,000. Um, but um, I, I'm just looking at a... a, 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 a a study here carried out by the World Bank and of all the countries that have started the vaccination programme, France has, has managed the lowest proportion of its population. I mean, we're, we're below uh, Costa Rica, Estonia, um, Luxembourg, everywhere. I mean, it's 0.001% it's, it's of the French have been vaccinated so far. Um, and as you can imagine, it's turning into a national scandal that President Macron wants to do something about fast. And do we know why that's the case, why that's happened? Yes, well, I think we do, really. It is because France, are, the French are pretty much the world's anti-vaxxer champions. I mean, they have a, a higher distrust of vaccinations in general and of the COVID vaccinations in particular than almost ever, everywhere else. I think in a recent study, perhaps Serbia and Croatia were slightly more distrustful, but, 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 but hardly any other countries. And so the government wanted to take that on board um, not to go too fast for fear of, 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 of pushing the French where they didn't want to go and increasing anti-vaccine uh, uh, movements. But, but, but in their extreme prudence, the government has probably uh, done the opposite. I mean, an example is in the... They started the campaign in, in old people's care homes, um, but instead of going around with the vaccination, they started by ha having pre-appointments for everyone to discuss their qualms and their concerns and decide whether they wanted to be vaccinated or not. 
Um, so you have your first appointment to go through whether you want to be vaccinated or not, and then a second appointment if you do want to be vaccinated. It's a massive bureaucracy, and it's a bureaucracy that has ended up by just increasing the level of distrust. Oh, it's really interesting that, and you know, food for thought for those in the UK who are concerned about the, the pace here as well. Really good to speak to you, Adam Sage, their Times Paris correspondent. Back on the plane now, though. Times Radio Airways taking off. We head from Paris this time to Berlin. We can speak to the Times Berlin correspondent, Oliver Moody. Hi, Oliver. Oliver? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just talk us Great. through the, the current situation in Germany, uh, the, the picture with coronavirus and the infection rates. Well, we're um, a bit like frogs being boiled by increments um, in a pan of water. Uh, we've been in progressively tightening uh, forms of lockdown since the start of November. And um, there is some suggestion that today that might be made a little bit stricter still, possibly with um, a limit on how far away we can uh, move from our homes. The infection rates have been declining gently over the past two weeks, but they're still far too high for the government's liking. Uh, and what exactly, where exactly are they? Because I mean, there's lots of people who, who you know, the, the UK who looked at Germany early on to think, oh, they were doing a very good job. And now there are some saying, well, actually, they're in the same boat or, you know, a very similar boat to the UK. Um, it's not quite as bad as in the UK. Um, the seven day uh Infection rate is um, at 134 new cases per 100,000 people um, and has fallen from about 190 a fortnight ago. So the trajectory is, is going in the right direction, but just not quickly enough. And on the question of um, uh, the vaccine, how many people have been vaccinated in Germany so far? So um, as of yesterday morning, uh, it was 265,986, which is about 0.32% of the population, which doesn't sound that impressive, but um, it is the highest uh, level of coverage in the EU after Denmark and pretty much where the UK was at this point in its vaccination programme. And has there been any resistance or unhappiness about the fact that European Union countries are further behind that Britain, uh, you know, already in trouble with the rest of the EU by leaving. Uh, but Britain did manage to approve uh, not one but two vaccines uh, uh, before um, and, and are further ahead down the road. Is there any sort of agitation about why European governments have been slightly slower off the mark? Well, there's, there's agitation on two fronts. Um, the first being that it's taking the European medicines regulator so long to um, approve the vaccines, um, we're expecting the Moderna vaccine to be approved at some point in the next week or so. And um, AstraZeneca, I mean, we don't we don't know. Um, the, the full data was only submitted six days ago. The, um, the other sort of source of discontent is the way that the EU has gone about ordering vaccines, which it's done on behalf of most of the member states. And um, there are criticisms in Germany and elsewhere that it bought uh, too many vaccines that won't be available until uh, very late in 2021 and too few of things like the, um, the BioNTech, Pfizer vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Moderna vaccine that would actually be useful right now. Well, it's really good to speak to you. That's uh, Oliver Moody there, the Times Berlin correspondent. It's back on the plane uh, now, though. It's heading to a country which has had all the plaudits recently in terms of vaccinations. We're heading to Israel. So I'll be joined by the Israeli journalist Anshul Peffer. Uh, hi, Anshul. Hi, Matt. Happy landings. 
<laughs> Thanks very much. It's nice. It's nice to talk to you, albeit virtually, rather than uh, doing this tour in real life. So, what's the current infection level uh, like in Israel at the moment? Well, it's it's inching up, and it's quite close to uh, to the level in Israel. It's about fifty new cases per one hundred thousand Israelis. So, the infection level is high, and at the same time, as as you mentioned, also the vaccination level is very high, and these two uh, trends are, are battling it out between each other right now. So, yeah, t- just explain just how uh, far ahead Israel is in terms of vaccinating. How how many people have been vaccinated? So, somewhere between fourteen and fifteen percent of Israelis have received over the last two and a half weeks the first dose of the Pfizer uh, of the Pfizer vaccine. That's the highest rate now anywhere in the world. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's about ten times. The, uh, the proportion of the British population have received the jab so far. So that certainly is something that Israel is very proud of. So the Prime Minister Netanyahu is making a lot of uh, political capital out of it. But at the same time, other aspects of handling of COVID are a shambles. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, uh, that 14% is sort of context. The UK vaccination uh, rate is about 1.47%, something like that. So 10 times as many as a proportion of, of the country. Uh, how have they managed to do that? What lessons do you think other countries could learn from Israel in terms of um, getting quite so many people vaccinated in such a short space of time? Well, to be fair, Israel has a number of unique advantages. It's a small country, a small population. They don't need more than one logistical hub to store the the vaccines once they once they land at the airport and it takes just a few hours to ferry them around to the vaccination centers and clinics and hospitals around the country. The other element is that uh, while us in Britain, Israelis have universal free health care, unlike, uh, unlike Britain, which is just the NHS as one provider of that health care, in Israel there are four uh, national health care providers which uh, compete with each other for, for members. And so they've, they, they, over the years, they've developed a lot of mechanisms for, for outreach to patients, for preventative medicine, and the, uh, it's, very, it's a very highly digitized system. So the moment they were given the role of, of delivering and administering the vaccines to Israelis, they were very quick at, at rolling that out. They're competing with each other to show their members that they can be the first to, uh, to, 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 get, to get them in and, and have them jabbed. We're talking here mainly about people who are over 60. So that's been very quick. The, you know, everything, the logistics, the, the, the appointment making has been, has really has been astonishingly, astonishingly efficient. But it's difficult to look at Israel and, and take that as lessons to other countries because most you know, Britain and other countries are much larger and have more cumbersome healthcare systems. Well, it's uh, it's really interesting that I suppose that is the advantage of, of being a small country. Israeli journalist Anshul Pfeffer there uh, talking us through how they've managed to vaccinate up to fourteen percent of the population. Right, let's get back on the plane then. Times Radio Airways taking off. Seats in the upright position. So we've already run out of chicken. Uh, we're heading now uh, all the way around to China now, uh, and uh, we can be joined by the Times Beijing correspondent Didi Tang. Hi, Didi. Hello. Hey. Morning. Uh, Nice to speak to you. Nice to speak to you. And focusing on the positive a bit more. When we spoke before, it's always been um, on the negative. But we're focused on the positive of the rollout of of the vaccine. One of the really interesting things from a UK perspective is watching, particularly over New Year, we saw photos of big groups of people in Wuhan in huge crowds. uh, Very different to the the picture here. What are the infection rates uh, like at the moment in China? 
So here, in if we talk about Wuhan, Wuhan has not reported a single case since June. So we're talking about more than six months. No virus whatsoever found spotted in the city of Wuhan. And then life has gone back to normal largely in that city. I was able to visit the city of Wuhan last month. You know, over there, I think everyone was wearing masks. You know, they were very particular when it comes to, you know, wearing the mask. And then people, they, tell, they told me that they felt really safe in that city. So that kind of explained, you know, the, the big celebrations. It did not look like it was organized. I think people just wanted to, you know, to, to, to go to the clock tower uh, on New Year's Eve yeah. for the countdown, for the group countdown, and they, and they released balloons, you know, into the sky when the, you know, the 2021 came. So overall in China, yeah. I think in general, people feel like pretty safe. And then that's actually when we're talking about vaccination, like people here, they're kind of reluctant to get vaccinated because they don't see the need and then they're not sure how reliable the vaccine will be. That's really interesting. If you've got such low levels of of the virus, then right. then why queue up mm-hmm. to, to to get the vaccine? Just explain to uh, listeners how people, how China and Wuhan in particular, managed to go from being the epicenter of this crisis to to having no cases for six months. How stringent were the controls on people? So in Wuhan, this whole city was locked down starting January 23rd, and I think it was locked down for some kind of almost three months, uh, a little over two months, three months. It was totally locked down. No one could go and no one could get out. Actually, people can go in to help, but people could not really get out. Uh, No flight, no train. And then inside the city, the transportation, you know, the public transportation, the buses, the underground trains, they were all suspended, you know, during that time. People could not really move around. Um, so that's kind of the way, you know, for them to try to cut off the the local transmission. And I think uh, the transmission of the virus, another very effective way for them to do is to do the mass testing. Actually, you know, like they try to test everyone they can, they could to find any, you know, especially to discover those silent carriers, those people who would who carried the virus but did not show the symptoms. And I think those people actually were very infectious even without, you know, showing the symptoms. And that was the problem. So through the mass testing, they were trying to use the, you know, to to find those people and get them out and isolate them and isolate their close contacts to cut off the, the, the local transmission. And that's the same formula uh, Chinese cities have been using whenever they see new cases sprouting out uh, in their jurisdictions. You know, that has happened here in, in Beijing. Uh, it's happening right now in Dalian, when they now see a new cluster of infections, they're trying to kind of you know, isolate those cases, uh, test everyone in the city, trying to find all those uh, silent cases to stop those people suppose, you know, from infecting others. I suppose that's something you can do when you've got the cases right down to such a low level. Really, really interesting. Nice to catch up with you again. That's Didi Tang, the Times Beijing uh, correspondent. Last time on the plane now. Back on the plane, everyone. Uh, don't forget your suitcase and your wicker donkey. Uh, whatever else, uh, other souvenirs you booked. Uh, we're heading to Japan now. Uh, I was speaking to the Times Asia editor, Richard Lloyd Parry, uh, and began by asking about the state of the disease in uh, Japan. Well, in Japan, it's in terms of the numbers, it's worse than ever. Uh, it's the highest number of infections. Tokyo, it's particularly bad. A lot of serious cases, hospital beds filling up. And the government is expected to declare a second state of emergency on Thursday. But you have to put that into context. I mean, the the, the number of total cases here, new cases in, in an average day, is often fewer than the number of deaths 
total debt in the UK. So we're still much better off here, but it is getting worse. Uh, uh, let's talk about, because we're sort of focusing on the vaccine. What is the position on the vaccine in Japan? Any vaccine? Yeah, you'd expect the Japanese government to be, you know, rushing to 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 vaccinate people. They've secured hundreds of millions of, uh, of doses from the various companies, more than they actually need. Um, and they've got the Olympics coming up in Tokyo at the end of next July. And they, you know, they really want that to go ahead. But rather interestingly, they're, they're not rushing into it. The prime minister said yesterday that they'd begin vaccinating frontline health workers at the end of February. The rest of the population, you know, the most people may not see a vaccine until as late as June. And, and the reasons for this are, are, are historic. I mean, well before this pandemic, Japanese have been rather vaccine hesitant. Uh, it goes back to things like the MMR vaccine. There was a scare there, not about autism, but about meningitis, which alarmed people. And the HPV vaccine, which is given to girls to prevent cervical cancer. There was also a scare there about, about side effects. Now, the consensus is there are no serious side effects, but people thought there were. And so the government faces this dilemma where they, you know, they want to get the, the vaccine out there, but they know that if they rush it or appear to be rushing it, then people will be less likely to take it up. So that's the position we're in. And what about in, in the rest of Asia? Other countries, are they ahead behind in terms of vaccination? Well, Indonesia, which is the world's fourth biggest country, a really very big country, is going ahead with vaccinations beginning next week. Now, rather interestingly, they're taking a very different approach from, from most countries. In most places, the priority is, uh, is the very elderly people in care homes, their carers, frontline health workers, etc. And then you go down through people with pre-existing health conditions and then down by age. In Indonesia, they're, they're first of all going to uh, vaccinate the working population. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that they're using a Chinese vaccine, which they've only really trialed on people under 60. So that's one reason for it. But the other line of thinking is that, uh, that people in the working population, younger people, are the most active. They go out, they work, they mix. They're more likely to catch the, the disease, but also to pass it on. So perhaps by going for them first, you'll reach herd immunity earlier, and that will benefit the population as a whole. So it's not the approach that most countries are taking. But, you know, some experts say it's not a dumb idea. Um, it may turn out to be quite a good approach and everyone's waiting to see how it works out. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription. To get that, go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 